This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back to a brand new season of Technical Human. We're back after a long and relaxing summer break to bring you new episodes of the show. This past year, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the ethics of data, teaching in UC Berkeley's program in data science, and talking to some of the present and future leaders in the industry over seminars and in office hours has led me to think in new ways about the relationship between counting, that is to say measuring, and counting, that is deciding what matters. Data science and data brokers often make the claim that numbers give an objective measure of the world and that using data-driven approaches will make our world better, where better often stands for more efficient. But a growing number of thinkers and critics are challenging these ideas and bringing their challenge into the mainstream, advocating for a human value-centric approach to data, a more equitable use of data and data science, and for protections from predatory data collection, protections that take the form The researchers at Data and Society, a think tank committed to identifying and using empirical evidence to directly inform the development and governments of new technologies, and to the idea that these technologies can and must be grounded in equity and human dignity, have been instrumental in transforming public and scholarly understanding of the social implications of data, automation, and AI. They have produced some of the most important original research to inform public debate about emerging technology. In this episode, I talked to Janet Haven, the Executive Director of Data and Society. She's worked at the intersection of technology, policy, governance, and accountability for more than 20 years, both domestically and internationally. She's a member of the National Artificial Intelligence Advisory Committee, which advises President Biden and the National AI Initiative Office on a range of issues related to artificial intelligence. She also acts as an advisor to the Trust and Safety Foundation and has brought her expertise in nonprofit governance to bear varied board memberships. She writes and speaks regularly on matters related to technology and society, federal AI research and development, and AI governance and policy. Before joining Data and Society, Janet spent more than a decade at the Open Society Foundations. There, she oversaw funding strategies and worldwide grant making related to technology, human rights, and governance, and played a substantial role in shaping the emerging international group focused on technology and accountability. As I was preparing my interview with Janet, I realized that so many of the questions I wanted to ask her had come out of conversations with a colleague at UC Berkeley School of Information, Dr. Morgan Ames, who previously appeared as a guest on the show. Definitely check out her episode. Dr. Ames was kind enough to agree to join me today as co-host, so you'll hear her voice on the episode too. Dr. Morgan Ames is an adjunct professor in the School of Information at UC Berkeley and the Interim Associate Director of Research for the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society at UC Berkeley, where she teaches in data science and administers the designated emphasis in science and technology studies. She's also affiliated with the Algorithmic Fairness and Opacity Working Group, the Center for Science, Technology, Society, and Policy, and the Berkeley Institute of Data Science. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Deb. Hi, Janet. Hi, Deb. Hi, Morgan. 
So I am delighted for this episode. Uh, usually it is just me. Today I have one of my favorite interlocutors, Dr. Morgan Ames, here to talk together about the major questions, I think, at the intersection of data and automated technologies that leverage data in service of their automation. I figure we can just get right into it. Janet, the Data and Society Research Institute, which you direct, was founded in 2014, and that's the larger kind of rubric of our conversation today. But I wanted to talk about the relationship between the founding vision in 2014 and 2023. It's 2023. That is approximately nine years after uh, Data and Society was founded. And the issue of data broadly, its power the misuse of data by bad actors and morally agnostic actors um, who oftentimes use data in ways that can be harmful in the pursuit of profit, the power of data, the relationship between data-centric technologies and automation and power, the major societal impact of data, especially is automated capacity and the escalated discourse around the social impact of data-centric technologies, the need for governance, standards, and so on. Today, 2023, that's somewhat mainstream, but I'm not sure that in 2014, many people were thinking about the massive need for governance or policies in this way, at least not on the kind of massive legal, social, and uh, ethical scale that we currently see it. Of course, now uh, our current state of what we might call a tech lash or a backlash against the harms caused by the tech industry is a somewhat kind of mainstream view, but, but it wasn't, I don't think, in 2014. So I wanted to ask you, what was going on in 2014 that the founding members of Data and Society saw or foresaw that maybe others didn't? Yeah, I think that's a great question because it it really, it captures how far we have come over the last nine or 10 years. I, I should first start by saying I am, I am not a founder of Data and Society. Data and Society was founded by Dana Boyd, who is an academic and a, a researcher at Microsoft Research. And what Dana really saw, and I'm, I'm you know, I interpreting a little bit here, what Dana really saw was that data-centric technologies and automated technologies will have unanticipated and potentially harmful societal consequences. And and she felt at that time like the field of research that was looking at that, and, and I think necessarily this has to be understood from the beginning as, as an interdisciplinary field of research, as a socio-technical field of research, was underdeveloped, that, that there were, was a, a, a group of researchers who were just starting to really deeply grapple with technology's potential harms and the implications particularly for marginalized and historically vulnerable groups. And, and so one of, the, one of the first things that Data and Society was involved with after its founding, and this was, this was before my time, before I joined the organization, which was in, in very early 2016, was, was to help convene um, what turned out to be, I think, a really foundational meeting at the White House under the Obama administration that linked um, what we then called big data, remember those days, big data and civil rights. And that was, that was a huge shift, I think. That was a really significant moment to be able to bring those two ideas together, to engage civil rights organizations, to really start having that conversation about the ways in which these technologies are, 
are impacting and as they become more ubiquitous will increasingly impact civil rights. So I think, you know, that was a real, I think a real flag in the sand. That was a real important starting point for not just data and society, but for the field. And I think, I think that what also happened at that event that was so critical, and I I would, I, I think, you know, Dana and others really had the vision to see this, was the need to not only foster that that field of academic research in an interdisciplinary way, but to build bridges into policy conversations and to create that translational space to be able to bring an empirical basis to the coming policymaking and governance conversations that we are deep in the weeds on now. And I think one of the one of the things that Dana saw was that so much of the conversation around uh, around technology and its its benefits and also its harms was driven by a hype cycle that we either saw, you know, a utopian future in which, you know, techno solutionism was rampant and you just, you know, put a chip in it and and you could fix poverty, you could fix structural racism, you could fix just about everything. Or the other side that which I think we're seeing a little bit more of a reemergence of now, which is literally that technology will kill us all and wipe humanity off the face of the planet. And so, you know, what Data and Society was really founded to do was to to build that community and and create those pathways to create that empirical basis to drive this conversation and and to ensure that the insights that were coming out of the research were actually useful in in the governance conversations. Thank you. Certainly so many of my uh, favorite people and scholars have been affiliated with data and society over the last nine years. So it's incredible work you're doing. Um, you spoke about this landmark meeting at the White House that that kind of brought together the community, really made the, the issues that drive data and society visible. I would love to hear what you think other landmark events or issues or public discourse changes have occurred in this time or even before that have shifted the thinking about data-centric technologies, automation, and the impact of these things in society? Well, I think I think to back up, you know, I came into this field in the late 1990s in a, a period of huge optimism, a period where, you know, we we only saw upsides in many ways. And, you know, I, I worked at the Open Society Foundations for many years in the information program where we, you know, worked on all kinds of aspects of technology and society, particularly looking at the ways in which technology could advance human rights work and governance. Um, I think we saw that, you know, that come out in the movement in the, you know, the sort of early 2000s in civic tech and the idea that, you know, we could make government better and more open and more accessible to people all across, you know, socioeconomic lines by adding technology. And I think that, you know, a lot of, of what happened in the Obama administration, both the, the first administration, but certainly the second, was, was really predicated on this very optimistic idea about technology and how it can serve the public interest. 
And, and I think that was also echoed by, of course, by that being a really useful narrative for our, you know, unregulated companies in, in Silicon Valley. And of course, we all, all remember that Google was, you know, predicated on the idea, don't be evil. And that, that was something that I think had like an incredible staying power, incredible anchoring idea that, that was, I think really difficult for people to get their heads around that, you know, maybe maybe this for-profit company wasn't actually working from a set of, you know, values or morality that was that was recognizable as a strong ethical stance. And so I think I think a lot of that broke open what I remember, you know, again having been in this in this field for, you know, 20 20 odd years. I think that one of the really watershed moments was some of the Snowden leaks in 2013. And I think it wasn't the 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 watershed part of it to my way of thinking was less about the actual information that was leaked and more about all of the all of the sudden recognition of the way in which information and technology was about power. And that surveillance, the power to surveil, the power to collect vast amounts of data, a, you know, sort of alliance between um, government surveillance practices and corporate America, all of those things, I think, was just this like really shocking moment um, for people who worked in this field and a recognition that that we may have miscalculated you know what the threats were who the enemies were um, all of all of those all of those issues so that that was a really big watershed moment I think you know for for people you know who and I would certainly you know include both of you in this I think for people who were doing research on the internet and society in the you know era leading up to the 2016 election there was a growing storm i mean i think every i we we were working on this at data and society at the time and there was a you know a growing sense of unease through late 2015 you know through 2016 even as people believed that you know Trump couldn't possibly be elected, I think there was a growing sense of unease that the you know the sort of euphoria around targeted campaigning and data collection that we saw in the Obama administration about how you know this was the sort of new way to you know elect the president that we like, people suddenly realized like everybody can use this technology and and it can manipulate the ways that people understand. The world around us, and and I there was a there was a meme in 2016. There was a, a kind of coordinated early media manipulation effort around Hillary Clinton's health, her cough, that was escalated and escalated and bubbled up, and you know so on and undermined the idea that she was fit for presidency and so on. Did that have any effect on the outcome of the election? Who knows? But I remember that as a as a as a sort of moment where. In a data and society, we watched a, a clearly intentional online effort to manipulate, and then we saw that obviously in in 
2016 after the election and moving forward. I think Cambridge Analytica, the Cambridge Analytical scandal was another big flag in the sand, which which we which I think also pointed to another issue, which is some parts of the world are going to regulate. They're going to take steps to control this. The, you know, the EU, you know, sort of advanced over time, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation that, you know, contained a number of provisions that were about protecting individuals and their data. The enforcement of that has been a mess. So, you know, jury's out. But the United States, after Cambridge Analytica, essentially did nothing, right? We had a lot of hearings. And I think that also was kind of a watershed moment where in the way that you would think, well, this is the time, right? We're going to do something. And and in fact, no. And I think that sets the stage for where we are right now in, in thinking about AI governance. So I guess the last thing I would say in terms of like a very sort of important inflection point, and this is not like a single point, but is has been the the incredibly important body of of research and writing in our field of technology and society by by black women, by academics who are writing about the connections between race, inequality, and technology in really powerful ways. And I think have change the conversation to really focus it very clearly on the issues of power and race and inequality. And so I'm, t- I'm talking about Sophia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression, Ruha Benjamin's work, Race After Technology, Timnit Gebru's work on stochastic parrots, Gender Shades that Joy Boilawimi did. And, and then I think the sort of final act, or not the final act, but kind of a, a, an important corollary to that was Timnit Gebru's firing from, from Google's AI ethics team about over, over stochastic parrots, her publication that was really about large language models and biased data. Um, she completely predicted um, everything that we are, are grappling with now that we're seeing in, in foundation models. And I think what that firing did was it sent this very, very powerful message that I think really finally pulled the plug on the don't be evil idea, but that real tech justice work doesn't exist alongside corporate objectives that those two things are fundamentally um, going to be in conflict with each other because they hit the companies at their business model. Well, you mentioned need for governance, need for kind of maybe external bodies, right? I'd love to just take a step back and define a key term here. That is, what is governance? And along those lines, are there existing models of governance, maybe in other sectors or other contexts, that provide a framework for thinking about governance in automation, in AI? So governance is, I think, is, it's, it's great to ask, what is governance? Because it is a really, really broad term. And, and I think it can be used in a, lot of, in a lot of different ways, some of which, you know, are somewhat conflicting, actually. Broadly, what what governance means is the mechanisms by which we choose to govern, the system of, of how we create rules or norms or standards to constrain or guide a you know a set of a set of societal behaviors or actions or products 
but governance can mean and it has been used in our in our field to you know to mean self-governance by industry, self-regulation. And it also has been used to mean government intervention. I think, you know, one thing that's important to say about governance as opposed to policymaking, for instance, or legislation or principles is that governance is a system. It is a, it is a durable, it should be ideally, a durable framework that works all along the life cycle of an accountability target. It's not a single intervention. It is a a way of approaching a body of work or product, set of products, or even just a concept in society. Well, if I could jump in for a second, I wanted to pull a little bit on this because I, I find this idea of governance across, you know, the many different forms that you're talking about, self-governance, for instance, policies and regulation, for instance, on, on the second dimension of that, on the third dimension, things like norms and standards, really, really thorny to try and figure out how those things fit together. And when I talk to folks about how we as a society should respond to or try to mitigate the harmful social impacts of data-centric technologies, particularly around AI technologies and automation, we typically end up talking about the three of what I'll all call the general categories of responses. One of those categories I'd call the, you know, like roughly, I don't know, farcically, the DIY or do-it-yourself category, as you mentioned, which, which roughly suggests that responses should be left to individual people or to communities, for example, to become more, for example, you know, digitally literate or to learn themselves how to navigate AI harms more effectively. The second of those categories I'd call the corporate responsibility category, which I'd roughly characterize as suggesting that companies reform themselves internally to better respond to enunciated principles of ethically desirable outcomes. That's kind of like the, let's create principles that suggest to companies the way that they might ethically or you know, using best practices respond. And then the third category, which I would roughly called the we need laws category, insists on legal, regulatory, and policy reform and governance with punishments, actual punishments for causing harms. Of course, you know, I'm sure that on a certain level, it's all three in combination, as you suggest. But usually when I'm talking to somebody, they tend to foreground or put importance on one of the three. And I'm curious where you fall in your thinking about how we might prioritize these three categories or how you rank them in a hierarchy of necessary tools or responses. Yeah. So I think that, you know, to historically, and when I say historically, I mean like the last 20 years, we've relied really heavily on self-regulation, on industry regulation, and on the idea, and I think, you know, this is a, this is a particularly American idea, you know, that the individual is, is, is really on the hook to manage their privacy settings, to, you know, turn down the brightness of their phone at night, to, you know, figure out how much screen time their kids should have, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then we've relied really heavily on, on industry regulation. And in fact, we've seen, you know, the, the rise of, you know, a whole profession, the trust and safety profession over the past, you know, five to 10 years that is, you know, are kind of the, the keepers along with legal teams at, at companies of, you know, best practices in all kinds of moderation, regulation, et cetera, that the companies are imposing upon themselves. 
And, and I would say that what we've seen in, in that approach is that it, it absolutely does some good, right? Like we just saw the entire, you know, Twitter tr trust and safety team get fired and Twitter is now like the biggest hot mess that none of us would let our children go anywhere near. Like we know that those teams do important work and are creating, creating meaningful standards and, you know, are, are trying their best to enforce them. Those teams are also directed by their companies to address problems that are both solvable from within the company and that are, you know, not, not significantly impacting the company's profits. And so, you know, that a, a, you know, a way to, to think about that um, and the, the sort of limits of, of self-regulation is the Facebook Oversight Board. And the Facebook Oversight Board is this huge effort to manage and, and make more transparent and more equitable and more international Facebook's content moderation efforts. The Oversight Board's actual remit is a very narrow part of content moderation. It's about takedowns. And when, when content takedowns happen, people around the world have this, you know, pathway to raise concerns, to engage, you know, with in, in, you know, to engage the, the oversight board in, you know, philosophical debate about what it is that, you know, should stay up and should stay down and, you know, how we interpret in the United States, the first amendment and all of these things. My personal interpretation of that is like, that's great for Facebook because it has nothing to do with their actual ad business. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with collecting data about people on their platforms and figuring out how to sell them ads. And, and so that, that kind of focus, I think, is something that we see a lot of in, you know, when industry regulates itself. And so therefore... <laughs> What I am really interested in, again, having sort of been in the weeds of, you know, self-regulation for many years, is I simply think that we're at a point where government intervention and, you know, we hope democratic government intervention with a values-based approach is really necessary, is absolutely necessary. And, you know, if, one of the things that I find really fascinating is the ways in which you know, our current congressional members seem to have kind of come around to that point of view. If I, I don't, I don't know if you, if either of you watched the the recent hearings where Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, was sort of brought before you know the standard congressional hearing, and he did great. He totally went to the school of Zuckerberg and like got it all. He landed it all really well. But one of the things that that happened in that conversation was that the senators repeatedly said, well, we got this wrong with social media and now we need to get it right. The implication being, you know, we need to regulate, we need to make laws, et cetera. I think that, you know, what's really tricky about that is obviously the, the devil's in the details. Um, and in that particular hearing, you know, what we heard was was nearly content free. So, you know, we heard calls for, you know, please regulate us, perhaps create a new regulatory body within the government, perhaps create an international, you know, sort of regulatory coalition between countries. Maybe we need licenses, but none of those things, all of those are empty vessels that have absolutely no content in them in terms of what are we actually saying we would regulate. And so I think that is where, 
it gets really tricky is that I think that we are absolutely at a moment where there's some growing consensus that government intervention is necessary, that this is a, an industry that's off the rails and has a dangerous concentration of power, but that there's still a lot of confusion about what that practically will mean. So I want to push in this a little bit deeper because, you know, what you're saying here really resonates with me. I've discovered that companies love to talk about ethics and have sometimes philosophical debates about ethics and they'll gather and put together ethics teams and they will allow them to deliberate and they'll uh, allow their deliberation and suggestions to get you know, the ear of the CEO until those ethical recommendations and uh, provocations interfere with the profit team's suggestions about how to make money. Uh, and so there's, I think, a, a fundamental problem with the self-governance kind of ethical point of, of view on this, um, simply because I think that there is a, a fundamental incentive structure around profit that oftentimes is orthogonal to ethical suggestions. And when the structure is ethical suggestions without any enforcement or any punishment, then the company will only take the ethics as seriously as it is convenient for their profit margins. And so, you know, this is something that I struggle with and I think about it on a daily basis. I run the Cal Poly Initiative on Ethics and Technology. And one critique of that even title, uh, Ethics and Technology, that I, I actually really understand is that ethics is not the same thing as governance. Ethics is on a basic level how we conduct ourselves or make decisions about what we ought to do in a context where we have to choose what to do or what not to do by deliberating about what we should do in a way that maximizes a kind of comprehensive set of values or how we maneuver in the world by following those values. You might say that ethics is exactly the opposite of the rules or laws. It's its what we deliberate when there is no law or something telling us what to do. If I stop at a red light, then I'm not acting ethically. I'm following the law. So, so there's, a, there's a kind of tension there that I wanted to tease out with you because I think of this kind of like ethical structure as almost an opt-in opportunity for companies to get kind of social kudos, social responsibility or corporate responsibility kudos and, and good publicity when they do it, but they can always opt in or opt out, but they don't actually have to face any real or defined punishment when they can't uh, or don't do ethical things because of you know some sort of internal conflict with profit. Usually, I, I think it's how it goes. I wonder, you know, how you think about the relationship in this context between values and ethics on the one hand and governance on the other. I mean, I've heard somebody say that um, law is codified ethics in that sense. Do you do you think do you take that point of view? Do you think that our ethical uh, standpoint is the starting off place for laws? Do you think that they are a kind of rubric of self governance of themselves, or how do you see the relationship between values and ethics on the one hand and laws and governance in a kind of regulatory framework on the other. So I, I, I agree with you that ethics is, is, a, is a tough term to pin down when you're trying to use it to, you know, create a, a governance outcome. I think that the focus on values is perhaps is more effective. And, and I think that I think that starting from a values framework of, and of being explicit about what the values are that need to be centered in governance and also in technology design and deployment, 
is is how I tend to think about it. And so, you know, when I when I when I say that, I mean using, for instance, an an example of government use of of an algorithmic system to allocate public benefits. If you have a value for that system that you want to you want to essentially make that use that technology to make those benefits as accessible as possible to as many people as possible you're going to design a different kind of system than if you have a value of efficiency or even a value of cost reduction and so i think that like that is like it, all of those could have an an a sort of ethic behind them of you know, of public benefit or public access, but it doesn't get to, I think, the the sort of core question of, of what is that system and what is that governance system meant to serve or who is it meant to serve? So I've long been a proponent. I love this talk of values and an acolyte of values in design or value sensitive design. And these are research approaches that, of course, really pay close attention to what values are built into technologies um, and also the ideological frames that underlie those values. And ideological frames, of course, ideology is a, a complicated idea, but on a, on a rough level, we can think about the kinds of foundational assumptions we make about about our lives, about our society, etc. So I'd love to talk, you've talked about some of the values that underlie tech production, but I'd like to talk a bit more about maybe some others and how often those values are aligned with the values of tech consumers. And if they are not, why not? Um, how would you envision realigning them? Yeah, well, I, I mean, in some ways, I, I, I will say, Morgan, I would love to hear you talk more about this because I, I feel like I feel like that this question of values-based design is one that you've thought about a great deal in your work. So maybe maybe I'll kick us off and and then uh, and then kick back to you a little bit. You know, I I think that by its very nature, the default. The default value that we see in, in, in data-centric technologies in automated systems is one of efficiency, of increasing efficiency. And, and, like, and that's such a, you know, that is, that is such a strange term, right? Because when you, when, so when you see an algorithmic system or when you're encountering a system that is meant to interact with humans, meant to interact with people, sometimes at their most vulnerable, then what efficiency means is, you know, is really contested. A, a, a scholar who I think you both know, David Robinson, recently uh, released a book called Voices in the Code, um, which is fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough, that is about the social process around the creation of the kidney allocation algorithm in America, which is a nationwide system to allocate kidneys from donors to people who are desperately in need of a kidney. And so it is literally life and death. And the 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 social production of that algorithm the social production of that algorithm is, is an incredible story of people really weighing these like incredibly difficult trade-offs and weighing the sort of idea of, you know, efficiency through different lenses with other values, 
that that you can imagine are are at play in a community that you know has a wide range of ages that you know is grappling with inequality on all kinds of levels and and where kidneys are scarce and so so i think of i you know when i when i think about sort of the the kind of ultimate story of values and design that story to me is just really foundational because it breaks open that idea that we're using algorithms for these, you know, somewhat like opaque and like technical reasons. We're not. We're using them in ways that are just absolutely at the core of, you know, of relationships and and of, you know, of life. So Morgan, I'm curious what you think. Oh gosh, um, that is such a fantastic book, certainly. Yeah, I I think a lot about how there are a lot of underlying values and assumptions around maybe being punitive. And, you know, this many will say these are carceral logics, right? People need to be punished, maybe. Certainly, you know, we had spoken before about Virginia Eubanks, her really excellent work around kind of government fraud protection. You know, I, th- I think often these sorts of systems operate within, I don't know, w- within a broader sense of scarcity for uh, benefits. And so the those limited benefits have to be allocated. And so there are various value judgments around who is worthy, who is not worthy, right? Who has a more worthy life, who is in more need. I think also, um, and, and my colleague Anita Say-Chan writes really wonderfully about this, there's a lot of assumptions about kind of universality, right? The same thing can be applied everywhere and every, everybody can benefit from the same, the same technological intervention or solution. And there is, there have been various scholars kind of pointing out a sort of inherent almost colonialism in that, right? Saying like, well, we know best. There's some paternalism, certainly. And of course, colonialist solutions are always more complicated in practice um, because everybody has their own ideas. Everybody has some level of agency around this. But I think that, you know, if we think about technology, not just as a quote unquote tool, as even my own students will say much too often, well, technology is just a tool. Well, sure, but tools can make certain things easy and make certain things hard. And, you know, we can say, Guns don't kill people, people kill people, but guns make it really easy, right? That, that matters. So I, yeah, I think a lot about those kinds of, of issues with that. I could say a lot more, but I'd love to kind of turn back a little bit to, to governance. Um, we talked a little bit about it. Uh, we talked about how the tech sector has shown that they can't be trusted to self-govern, right? Um, Or really be even maybe the primary architects of that kind of governance. At the same time, I feel like I've seen not great leadership, at least in the United States, around governance of technology. And some of it, I think, is just not really great advisors for some lawmakers. Some lawmakers clearly have amazing advisors, and they're very up, up to date on what's going on. But quite a few really fall into either tech boosterism or kind of dystopian thinking themselves in a way that troubles me. And as you said earlier, enforcement of GDPR has been a mess. So I think one question I have for you, maybe we can't fully answer it, right? But uh, who should govern these kinds of AI automation systems, um, and particularly when we think about a globalized context where tech companies work internationally, right? There isn't one set of values, maybe that that will that will fit in all of those contexts. 
the impact of these technologies have causal change across borders, across uh, different countries. So who should be in charge of these sorts of things? Yes. So I, I guess I will, I will start by just making a strong plug for participatory methods of governance. And I think there's the, the, the jury is out on what that looks like in, in algorithmic governance and in, in governance of data-centric technologies, but we kind of know how to do it in other sectors. You know, there, there have been lots and lots of experiments and, you know, functional systems that allow for public input, input from impacted communities into critical decision-making. And I think that there's a real tendency to fall back into what our, our, our mutual colleague, Professor Jenna Burrell, calls the coding elite in thinking that, that technology governance needs to be handled by the technologists, that, that you know, technologists know best about how, how we think about the impacts of these systems and that needs to stay at that level because this is all technical stuff. It's just too hard for normal people to understand. I, I won't say the word on the podcast that, that comes to mind for me um, when, I, when I hear that, but it is, I, I think that's fundamentally untrue. I certainly think that technologists play an important role. That's not to say they, they shouldn't be part of the consultation, but I think that the, you know, the idea that, you know, that we need to lean into a, you know, a, a sort of world in which technology knowledge, technical knowledge is uh, also, is also how we determine kind of social outcomes is, is completely wrong. As to, as to who should govern, you know, kind of from a more like practical perspective um, in, in this moment, for instance, you know, one of the things, so, so I sit on the um, National AI Advisory Committee to the White House. And so our, our job as a committee, we're a, we're a FACA, a um, federal advisory committee made up of, you know, citizens that have been convened under the Department of Commerce to advise the National AI Initiative Office and the president about how they should be approaching AI. And one of the things that's been actually incredibly heartening in, in doing that work over the past year is learning the um, the degree of of expertise that there already is in the government. So we definitely lack capacity. We lack, you know, we need many, many more people who have that sort of bridging and translating expertise to understand and think through what the social and legal and political and cultural implications of technology are and how that translates into a regulatory approach. But we have some really strong starting points in inside the government right now. The Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is which is kind of like an internal think tank um, on science and technology that sits within the White House, that sits within the executive branch, released a really important document in October of, of last year, of 2022, called the Blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. And what it articulated was a, a five-point a five set of rights that, that they believed every uh, American should have access to. And, um, and they worked very, very closely with agencies across the executive branch 
to think through practically, because of course this is not law, right? This is more like a, a sort of, you know, government white paper as it were, to think, but to think really practically about how to take those principles and move them into practice and, and to, in some cases, find, you know, existing regulatory or legal devices that actually support their enactment and enforcement. And so those principles are things like safe and effective systems, human fallback, protection from algorithmic discriminations, data privacy. Um, so these are, you know, these are sort of basic values-based and evidence-based uh, principles that are, it turns out, are actually, some of them are actually already, you know, protected under existing civil rights law that just hadn't been kind of deployed in that way. Interesting, the, in, in so that came out in October. In February, uh, President Biden released an executive order that was, was called Further Advancing Racial Equity, which built on the executive order he put out on his first day in office in um, in, in 2021 called Advancing Racial Equity. Uh, and in that executive order that he put out in, in February of this year, he pulled the language about protections against algorithmic discrimination, which is like, you know, a frontier idea in civil rights. And he put it in the executive order and said, all of the agencies in the executive branch are now required to do this, to protect against algorithmic discrimination. And so like, those are the kinds of steps that I feel very heartened by, because I think that there is, there is a, a group of people inside the government that are paying very close attention to this moment and that are, you know, drawing on deep expertise to, to move it forward. I think the legislative environment in right now on the Hill is a, is a little bit more scattered, there are a number of, you know, there, there, there are a number of proposed legislations that that would that would be incredibly useful to pass, like the American Data Protection and Privacy Act, which uh, which would would create a, you know, comprehensive federal data privacy law, which we like bizarrely do not have in the United States, like every other country on earth pretty much does. You know, the Algorithmic Accountability Act, which is coming out of Senator Wyden's office, came out in, in 2022, 2019, and then again in 2022. And that's, that is a really strong, I think, piece of legislation that calls for algorithmic impact assessments for systems above a certain size. We also have seen the, the sort of release of the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, NIST, put out, I think, a really important document, the, the AI Risk Management Framework, which is a, again, not enforceable, but is a, a proposal for developing a set of standards for, for the governance of AI. Standards are not rights-based and they're not you know, enforceable, but they are, they are a baseline that the government is kind of putting out as a way to think about AI governance that is grounded in a values-based and socio-technical framework. So there are some really, I think, important steps that are happening. I think what we're missing, honestly, in the governance side is a big picture sort of strategic set of commitments from the U.S. government to say, you know, this is the values framework that we intend to use to build that durable governance framework for AI. Morgan, what do you think? I'm so glad you mentioned that uh, that office. Um, certainly my, my brilliant colleague, Deirdre Mulligan, is yes. part of that right now, although 
UC Berkeley School of Information greatly misses her. Um, but I mean, among other things in her writing, she advocates for open deliberative processes around software development, which is very different from how it's done now, right? Um, but this would be taking a page from other, you know, deliberative government processes that hold public hearings and, and really think carefully about that. On the other hand, though, I remember I was told during my undergrad degree in computer science um, at UC Berkeley back in the, you know, early 2000s, that tech people were the smartest people in the room, that we were the smartest people in the room, that these tools of scale and modularity and abstraction that we were learning could literally solve any problem. And I remember even at the time, I kind of rolled my eyes about that, but journalists echo that kind of trope all the time, even now. So I feel like we really have our work cut out for us to say, no, 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 we need to decenter the the quote unquote tech expertise, not to say that they are aren't experts in their in their field, but you know, to apply that expertise all across all sorts of other fields just seems very misguided. Right. And I would just add to that that, you know, uh, when we're talking about AI, when we're talking about tech, what I think gets left out is that these are socio-technical systems. I like that term, socio-technical system, because it connects the technology to the fact that the technology uh, is always aimed at causing a change in human behavior or facilitating some sort of uh, human interaction. And the idea that we can, you know, mechanize and allow computers to self-enact certain processes leaves out the fact that when a technologist creates a product, the end aim is the interface with human beings. And uh, I guess, you know, this puts into sharp focus for me both the fact that uh, we need other people deliberating how these systems should uh, function, how they might re be restricted, and those other people need to come from you know, different the different areas where the technology has its impact and uh, where it interfaces with human beings. This uh, is something that I think Janet, you're uniquely posited to talk about because I know that Data and Society has recently launched the Algorithmic Impact Lab to think through precisely the kinds of questions about how technologies, particularly data technologies that enable automated interface, link up with human beings. And I wonder if you could talk about the Algorithmic Impact Lab as a project. How do you decide, or how should we decide what exactly gets automated? How should we decide what kinds of technologies we want to uh, replace the deliberative human function or a social connection? How do we decide what junctures the human interface should interact with a kind of um, mechanized process? I guess the larger question here is, should we automate as many things as can be automated? That certainly seems to be a premise of uh, technological innovation when it comes to AI. Um, but should we? Uh, why or why not? Yeah, well, so first, thank you for giving me an opportunity to to talk about the, the project you mentioned that we recently launched. Um, it's called the Algorithmic Impact Methods Lab, and uh, we launched it a couple of weeks ago. What, what this project is about is a, it is, it is a next step in the work that we've been doing for the past several years at Data and Society on algorithmic impact assessments. And, and what algorithmic impact assessments are is, you know, is, is a way of assessing the societal impact, both, you know, intended and unintended, positive and negative, of 
an algorithmic system. And, and I think particularly thinking about the impact of those systems on historically marginalized groups and, and vulnerable, vulnerable populations. So the Algorithmic Impact Methods Lab is responding to a, a, a kind of like interesting moment that we're in, in the governance space, actually, going back to that point, which is the idea of algorithmic impact assessments has has really taken hold in in governance language, right? They they show up in the EU AI Act. They show up in the Algorithmic Accountability Act that I mentioned that Senator Wyden's office is working on. They have they have shown up in many many different places. Actually, the NTIA, one of the um, agencies and the executive branch has like a huge uh, call for public comment right now about specifically about algorithmic impact assessments. The problem with them is right now there is no agreed upon way to do them. And the the default sort of methodology would be to essentially say like, well, the companies can figure this one out, right? Like they'll they'll tell us how to do an impact assessment, which um, kicks us right back into the world of, of industry self-regulation. And I think that is a danger that, you know, that we see potentially playing out in governance is that, you know, there's a high level law or regulation that gets passed, but essentially it's left to companies to implement it without, you know, a kind of like, public guidelines or or rulemaking about like how that thing should actually happen. Again, the devil is in the details. So, you know, one of the things that we're most concerned about at Data and Society is is that is that is that that idea of of impact assessments will essentially be captured by industry and and that we do not have at this point a gold standard for what a public interest algorithmic impact assessment should look like. One that is, again, going back to to Deirdre's point that you mentioned, Deirdre Mulligan's point, one that is participatory, one that is actually bringing in the voices and experiences and centering, not just in sort of data collection, but in actual power, the uh, impacted communities. So that is that that is the the sort of core of that project. And and you know, we do have models for what impact assessments can look like. For instance, environmental impact assessments are, you know, an existing tool in the environmental justice and and governance space that, you know, we've drawn on heavily. Human rights impact assessments are another one. So so that's where we that's where we have uh, where we what we've drawn on and in launching the algorithmic impact methods lab, um, which we also call the AIM lab. So we're we're really excited to get that to get that moving forward with a with a group of partners and 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 are hoping to be putting some some work out over the over the coming months. But that kind of doesn't entirely answer your question, which is like, I think a much more, you know, kind of philosophical and, you know, big picture societal question about what we should automate. And again, I am I am looking at the two of you who have such expertise and depth in this subject. And so I am going to say a couple of things, and then I really would love to hear what both of you think about this. I would... I would start by saying, um, first of all, I don't know. I don't think there are, you know, there's a hard line. I think we've seen some 
really, really important experiments in banning the use of certain types of automation, for instance, the use of, you know, facial recognition by law enforcement agencies is one, one way that that we've seen limitation um, put on where we say, okay, we don't want to automate this. But I don't think that that really gets to the question that that we need to talk about as, you know, broadly as a society. And, and I think this is where we really separate from a conversation about formal governance, which is that there are, I think that there are really significant questions about what we automate you know, what binds us as a society, what makes us human that aren't going to be covered by like civil rights law or, you know, regulatory action, you know, by the DOJ or something like that. Those are, I think, deep societal conversations that we need to have and that I don't think we have great spaces to have those in right now. And and so, I, I mean, I will say the area that I am thinking a lot about in in recent months around that question is is care work. You know, I think that there is a, I think that there is a kind of obvious trajectory towards the automation of care work, and I think you know we're already seeing experiments with it. And when I say care work, I mean that really broadly, right? Like we spend a lot of mostly unpaid or low paid time in our society caring for caring for people caring for children caring for adults who are and others who are you know experiencing disabilities caring for older people and um, I would include broadly in the in care work I would think of education as being part of that particularly early child education. And that is an area that troubles me and and that I think about a lot that it is that's not really going to be covered by governance. There's no there, like there, at least like in the governance conversations I'm in, like nobody's talking about that. And yet, I think that where technology intersects with human outcomes, that area is profound, both in terms of the experiences that people have at maybe the beginnings and the ends of their lives. And what it means for the people in the middle when we are, you know, when we are assigning those kinds of care tasks out to, you know, potentially automated systems and robots. And I will just say one last thing on this, and then I I want to hand it off to you, which is a great book on this that I have just read, which maybe both of you have encountered already, is, um, is called Robots Won't Save Japan. It's written by James Wright. He did a this this deep ethnographic study of the Japanese governance government's sort of plan to deal with their you know anticipated you know population you know bomb of of aging aging people and their sort of complete aversion to immigration in the country, so they don't have a, a you know access to a, a low wage care population, caregiving population. And so they embarked on this kind of national program to build, you know, a robot intervention to care for their elderly. It is it is a great book, um, and I, I really recommend it for people who are thinking about this. Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a while. You know, I, I remember, I think it was maybe 2012 or 2013 when I read Sherry Turkle's book called Alone Together, where she talks about the activity of caregiving. It's something that I've been thinking about quite recently, 
the more I think about kind of the principles of engineering itself as a kind of force that undergirds our technological production. And what engineering essentially holds as its core principle is the idea of making something more efficient. It's making X thing more efficient and therefore making it more profitable. And it's very convenient that the idea of profit is aligned with the idea of efficiency because it makes a kind of capitalistic impulse which undergirds the system of technological production in the United States as well, very compatible with the uh, logic of technological production. Of course, many of us who are thinking about this in humanistic terms really, I think, understand that the variety and diversity and the multitude of human values are not always compatible with the idea of efficiency. Things like love or care, I would argue, are actually orthogonal to the idea of efficiency. I think about myself and how I want to be loved, and very rarely do I want to be loved efficiently, although maybe my partner thinks differently. But when I ask undergraduates, you know, how many of you are in a relationship? Some of them raise their hands. I said, how many of you want a relationship or at least want, you know, uh, somebody who cares about you on a romantic scale? And some of them raise their hands. And by the end of the questions about that I ask about how many of them want a kind of romantic, caring partnership, everybody's got a hand in the air. And I said, well, how many of you want that person to love you efficiently? And there's a lot of snickers and giggles because I don't think that many of us really, when we think about how we want to be handled by a romantic partner, say, yes, please be as efficient as possible, right? Um, when we think about how we want to engage in some of the most important and basic practices of our daily lives, just eating, right? Um, very rarely, I think, do I sit down to a, a meal with people I care about to eat efficiently. I eat for pleasure. I eat because it's my grandmother's recipe and she left a country under duress. And the only thing that she could take with her are the recipes. And that allowed her to create the material life that she left behind. And I make that recipe because it's been handed down to me from somebody dear. Or I make a forced course meal for my uh, romantic other so that we can enjoy a luxurious meal or I eat because it tastes good, right? <laughs> so all of those things have nothing to do with efficiency. And yet, if we look at the logic by which we decide which technologies to incorporate or which technologies uh, to build, most of them have that principle as the primary principle. So I, I just, I guess, get a little bit sad when I see that the majority and the diversity of human values that I think we ought to live by become so subservient to this one logic of efficiency. And I wonder whether there's a way out of this that you see if we can't fundamentally change both the expectation that technologists um, who oftentimes have training that lead them toward that efficiency principle and then incentive structures that also prioritize the efficiency principle because it is as i said the logic of capitalism like is there any possibility of of changing this or are we all going to one day be cared for efficiently by robots i want to know what morgan thinks oh goodness <laughs> i so I'm, <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, a paper. I, it actually came out in, in 2001, um, but I still teach with it because I feel like it's just more prescient, more, more relevant now than ever. It was so prescient at the time. Um, and it was written by Mark Ackerman, a uh, computer-supported cooperative work researcher called The Sociotechnical Gap. And he talks about how basically machines, when we try to automate systems, especially ones that involve our social worlds in various ways, 
there are always things that the machines can't do and that the machines don't quite understand, right? There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of interpretation. I don't, the talk of efficiency also reminds me of all these movements for slow food, slow scholarship, right? Um, and of course, this is pushing back not just against tech, but against our larger capitalistic system. But I, I wonder if, you know, just riffing on both the socio-technical gap, right, what machines maybe can never do. And uh, it's not just a matter of, oh, another five years. There's likely social nuance, care work, potentially, that maybe can never really be automated. So I I, I think a lot about those, but I'd love to hear a little bit from, from you, Janet. You know, we've talked a bit about care work, about love. Are there things, maybe these are, are them or other things that should absolutely not be automated? We should just stop trying because we are undermining, maybe we're undermining our very humanity. Maybe we're undermining the values that we should be centering in making a life worth living. Well, I mean, I, I, will, I will put a plug in. I don't, I don't think this is quite what you're looking for, but I'll put a plug in for the campaign to stop killer robots. And, you know, I, I think that the, the work that that group has done continues to do to draw attention to the use of automated systems in, in warfare is, is really, really critical. And, and so everybody should give them money. But... I think beyond beyond those kind of uses and the I, I feel like you're you're thinking about the the more you know the more day-to-day applications of of technology and of AI that we may that we may encounter you know I I think the way that I would arrive at an answer to that question which I don't have right now is to think about work that that for instance Madeline Ellish who was a researcher at Data and Society who was one of the founding members of our AI on the ground research program that that now has launched the AIM lab Madeline has moved on to um, onto Google where she's a, a, a researcher she wrote a paper very early on, that I loved, a piece of research called AI in Context, that talked about the ways in which, you know, we understand, we tend to talk about AI as, as sort of replacing and or, you know, automated systems as replacers of humans, human action, human behavior. And her argument was that in reality, and this is of course gets to like the sort of core of the of the socio-technical system that you know that we need to understand ai systems as um, integrative as as in the future working alongside and and with people and she she didn't i i would i would say i don't think she put a strong value judgment on that it was a you know it was an empirical piece of work but i i think that like thinking about it that way to me is at least somewhat soothing um, and more more compelling. And I, I guess I, you know, thinking about that in the context of, you know, elder care, for instance, you know, there are there are ways in which, you know, you can imagine a, you know, a, a humanoid automated system, you know, might do a better job at like making sure that 
older people are, are getting the medications that they need or that there's like a very quick response time when somebody is in danger or something like that, but that there are also types of, of care work that, you know, we would never want to automate and, and, you know, that we would never want to, to, to take the humanity out of an exchange of care. And so I, I, I think, you know, that, that takes me back to the feeling that we do need more spaces to have these debates around, like, and, and not so much in theory, you know, not so much in theory or at 10,000 feet, but in like really, you know, clear, specific examples, such as the one that I mentioned that David Robinson, you know, put forward in his book, Voices on the Code, about the kidney allocation algorithm, which is, again, I think a great example of what, you know, participatory methods and and decision making around the use of automation look like when lives are at stake. I want to kind of ask a big picture question um, as we're kind of winding down to the end. What is data and society's ultimate vision for data and for society? On a big picture scale, what kinds of ideals and aims and outcomes do you ultimately want to help usher into being or see come into being? Our, our organizational vision is that the values, and this you know, takes us right back to the beginning of talking about values, but that the values that inform and shape technology are are visible and are intentionally chosen with respect for human dignity and for just outcomes. And, you know, I think that is, that is obviously pretty, pretty reductionist in terms of, you know, a whole organization set of set of goals and vision. But, you know, I think in many ways, that's, that's what we are really working towards in all of our work is that you know, we see a values-based, human-centric approach to to technology use and development and deployment and design, rather than one that's driven purely by efficiency, innovation, and, you know, kind of capitalist markers. I think we have time for one last question, Morgan. You want to ask it? Yeah, sure. So Deb and I co-teach a course um, in the Graduate Data Science Program at Berkeley on the context of data and human values. I know she also teaches courses at Cal Poly on ethics and tech. Um, And we talk a lot to students um, who represent the next generation of thinkers and leaders and workers in the tech industry. I would love to know what you would want those listeners, um, maybe people in tech-focused programs who are studying ethics and human values, what would you want them to know or think about or be aware of as they move forward in their careers? Yeah, there are two things that I would, I think I would say. So one is like kind of the practical career advice, which is, I think they're in a great place. I think this is going to be a growing field. And I think particularly for people who are interested in in working in public interest technology and and broadly in the public interest, that there are going to be a lot of opportunities. I I think part of what's really exciting for, for that cohort, for this cohort that you're teaching right now, is that you know, we're kind of at a moment of like role creation that, that there are, I think that there are new types of jobs that are going to be emerging that, you know, we don't even really understand what those are yet, but that translational ability is going to be, I think in, 
in high demand and is going to be really, really important in shaping what our society looks like. I think the, the second thing that I would say is more, you know, kind of philosophical, which is that, which, it, which is, again, going back to the idea that values are really what undergeared um, so much of this, in my opinion, that if we're not starting from a shared set of, of visible and intentionally chosen values when we're talking about technology and society, that governance doesn't really do much for us. Um, we can govern in any direction that we want to. China, for instance, has a, a pretty robust set of you know, regulatory controls around algorithmic systems that are reflective of you know, their, their values and, and their governance system. And, you know, they are, they are not the ones that I think we would want to adopt in the United States. So if we want a human centric society in which, you know, we are protecting the most vulnerable in our society and a broad set of rights are being advanced, we have to make that choice intentionally. I think we have to push back on a narrative of a lack of societal agency. And, and I think that we need to think about how people who are coming up as leaders take more agency and, and direct how we want technology to develop and technology governance to develop. I think this is a, it's an opportunity that is, that is open right now and we definitely need more people in the field. I think that that's a great note to end on. Morgan, thank you very much for signing on as co-host. Janet, thank you very much for coming on to the conversation today. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. It was sure a joy to be part of it. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you both so much for, for having me on. This has been a lot.